So I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 6 as we continue to journey with the early church trying to figure out what they did, what it was about, and what it means to us. And I will just say personally thank you for um, Carla and me for your love uh, in the last couple of weeks. It has been very healing and uh, very fattening, quite frankly. Um, I'm not used to eating this much, and each one of you has tried to bless the, those of you who have fed us, have tried to bless the pastor's family in some significant ways, and I, I've, I've found myself every night going back for seconds. It's, it's, it's not a good thing, not a good thing. And the desserts, my Lord, um, for an almost diabetic, it's been... Um, It's been a real struggle. So thank you for helping me grow in Christ by setting all of that in front of us. One uh, one quote from Carl, I said, what do you want me to say? You know my struggles with sometimes saying the right or the wrong thing in terms of what I relay about how she's doing and whatever. And um, uh, um, she said, the waiting gets to me. Uh, the waiting has been hard. It's been several months now of waiting to, for what the diagnosis actually is. Uh, but she said God still seems to show up. And so, um, yeah, we'll let that word stand. That's a word from your, your first lady. Don't, don't tell her I called her that. But, um, <laughs> and we would appreciate your continued prayers. The last few days have been... I think especially difficult for both of us, so appreciate your prayers. So Acts chapter 6, would you please stand? Let's read these words together and see if we can make some sense from them. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, and I don't think this is a tack-on phrase, I think Luke is making a real point here, so remember this phrase. In the days when the church was just busting out, doing really well, there arose, of course there did, a complaint against the uh, Hebrew-speaking folk by the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking folk, because their widows were not getting as much soup in the daily distribution So then the twelve apostles summoned the multitude of the rest of the disciples, the rest of the followers, and said, look, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, uh, brothers and sisters, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this very important business. We will then continue to give ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Syrian Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, And a great many of even the priests in the temple, the Jewish priests in the temple, were obedient to the faith. They became followers of Jesus of Nazareth. You may be seated. So here's what I think Luke is trying to say. 
First of all, I think he's trying to say that the enemy will continue to attack the church and followers of Jesus who make up the church, especially when the church is growing. Again, I don't think Luke just accidentally said in the days when the disciples were multiplying. I think he was saying in the very time when things were really uh, booming, in the time when folk were, uh, to, to take Peter and John's example, they were seeing people and they were loving people like they loved that, uh, that, uh, that lame guy on, on the steps up to the beautiful gate in the temple and people were, were coming to Christ in droves. Uh, um, in fact, um, if you go back to Acts 2, um, 3, 4, 5, there's several uh, touchstones with that growth all the way through. Luke continues to say, you know, like after a persecution, but the church kept growing. Or um, after another event, the church kept growing. And so there have been several touchstones. This is the fourth one, actually, uh, where, 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 where Luke says the church continues to grow exponentially is what the Greek phrase means. And then in the next chapter, we're going to see Stephen, one of these that was chosen to minister to this mess between the Hebrew-speaking widows and the Greek-speaking widows to try to create, uh, keep unity in the church. Stephen is going to give, tell his story to the religious leaders who had been persecuting the church, and there's going to be such a great persecution that the church is going to be thrust out of Jerusalem, literally now, to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so in that very moment, in the very time, it's been about a year since Acts 2 to this point, uh, most scholars believe, in the very time when the church is just getting ready, it's already, it's already expanding and it's getting ready to really launch. In the very moment of that launch, uh, the enemy decides to attack the church again. And that's because uh, if the church is doing nothing, they don't need to be attacked. The church doesn't need to be attacked. But if the church is out there touching people and healing people, if the church really is the salt of the earth, the light of the world, if, if the church is that entity that if they're not there as salt, the world rots. If they're not there as light, the world is dark, pitch dark. There's no hope if that's what the church is about. And if the church is indeed doing that, then that is the focal point of the spiritual battle that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual principalities and powers in heavenly places. If the church is trying to reach out, and they indeed are reaching out, um, then... Um, they're going to be under attack. There has never been a day in the history of the church that's been focused on touching people and seeing them healed in the name of the King Jesus that the church has not been under attack. There's never been a day in church history, and there's never going to be a day at Hope Community Church where if we are doing what the call of the gospel is, that we won't in some way be under attack. We should not be surprised. We should not be waiting for that time. And if we can just get through this attack, we'll, we'll hit this period when the enemy will just say, well, I'm done with hope. They can just go ahead and share the good news of our healing king. That day will never happen as long as we are about light and darkness, as long as we're about salt in the rot, as long as we're about loving folk to the point that they can find healing. In Jesus' name, I've come to heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. We can expect, you personally can expect, if you're about that venture, to see attack from our enemy. Because the very people that we're called to reach, he hates with all of his heart. He wants to take them out. Jesus said, I've come to give life and life more abundant, but the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. So um, in this moment when the church multiplies... There's always a bit of war.
that's going on. Number two, many times the enemy will not just attack from without. He'll attack from within. So if you go into these first six chapters of Acts, there have been four, including this one, four attacks. Two of them have been from outside, from the religious leaders, and two of them have been from within. Acts 5, that Riley preached last week, was about an internal attack. Brother and a sister, Ananias and Sapphira, lied. That wasn't coming from out here. That was right up in the middle with some folk who were followers of Christ. They lied, and so there was drama. That was an internal attack. And then you have another external attack at the end of five, and now here we are back again. Two of the four attacks in Acts uh, chapter 2 through chapter 6 have come from within the body of Christ. This is exactly what Paul is going to warn the Ephesian church about in Acts chapter 20. Uh, You can look it up later, Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. When he's leaving, he knows he'll never see them again. He's sobbing, and he says, I want you to watch day and night for wolves that will come up from within you. In fact, interestingly enough, when Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, most scholars believe that Timothy was at Ephesus. He was there in Ephesus as an emissary of Paul, and the drama that he was writing to try to fix was elders from Ephesus that may have been there in Acts 20, hugging Paul's neck, who literally somewhere lost their way, got their eyes off of Christ, and became these controlling um, demagogue kinds of leaders that Timothy uh, was instructed by Paul to take care of so the church could stay on point. And so you and I, at times, I think, in history, we've been so concerned with the enemy that's out there, you know, those, those bad pagan folk, you know, those non-believers that just don't get it like we get it. When really, I think, well, at least according to Acts so far, 50% of the time, the, um, the enemy within is, is scarier than the enemy without. In fact, you know the old saying, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I was, you know, I did church history in my master's degree, and so, you know, we took a course on uh, the first 1,500 years of church history, and then a course on uh, church history from 1,500 up until um, the modern era, and then I took courses because it was my, my major, you know, on each era of church history, and so I was combing my memory banks to think, Has there ever been one major external persecution that threatened the church in a way that didn't somehow cause the church to be more inspired? Has there been one major persecution from without that did more damage to the church than it did inspire the church? Am I making sense? Because when folk... uh, die for Christ, there's like this, this thing that happens that it makes it so real that you'd think that, that others would go, hey, man, if, that's what, if I'm going to follow Christ, I've got to back off. Instead, what happens is when somebody dies for Christ, you see people saying, that person had something to live for. I want to know about who they live for. So it has the opposite effect. When a persecution comes from without, it seems to in history have the opposite effect. It seems to spur the church on. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But when the persecution happens from within, that's when the church is most at risk of literally shutting down. 
I mean, the first church council, the Council of Nicaea, was about the Arian heresy. Uh, We sometimes, if we don't know church history, we think of Arius, the man who spouted the Arian heresy, as some kind of non-believing, I don't know. No, he was a pastor. He was a very reputable pastor in the Alexandrian church. He just had a different view than what is considered today to be orthodox of, of, of Jesus. He believed that Jesus was created not the only begotten in the sense of always being there with the Father. He believed that Jesus was the Savior of the world. He was just trying to understand the mystery of the incarnation. And, of course, Nicaea had to deal with that because that would have changed the nature of Christianity. But that attack, I'm going to say, that doctrinal attack didn't come from without. It came from within. In the Thirty Years' War between 1618 and 1648, that was the aftermath of the Reformation, that destroyed, in some places, 50% of the local population in certain parts of Europe. In fact, in all of Europe, they say, the estimates are, are, you know, different historians will say different things, somewhere between 25 and 50% of the the, uh, folk in Europe, many of them followers of Jesus Christ. And that war, the Thirty Years' War, was fought between Protestants and Roman Catholics. The attack wasn't from without. The attack was from within. And, of course, you've heard me quote this statistic before. 60,000 divisions in the church today. From the time that Jesus said, Father, might they be one so that the world would know that you sent me. The church is divided 60,000 times. And I promise you, this I can guarantee you, 99% of those divisions had nothing to do with what was going on out here with nonbelievers. The division came right up in here. So, the enemy will never stop attacking. He hates the people that our Father loves and sent Jesus to die for and be resurrected for. The enemy will often attack from within. I'm not saying we shouldn't, that we should be paranoid. Like, I don't want you walking out today going, uh-huh, yeah, I know who you are. You're not fooling me. You say you got my back. We even prayed together. You did not fool me. No, that's not the point. The point is to know that the enemy is a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour. He's an angel of light. um, And he's trying to always get us off just a little bit. and, uh, And usually the most vicious attacks and the most damaging attacks come from within. Number three. Often, the enemy's attack is around this age-old strategy of divide and conquer. If you're a parent, and if you're a parent with a partner, and if you haven't experienced this yet, you will. Your children will intuit that one of the ways to get their way in your family is to divide and conquer. Well, mom said, daddy doesn't love me like you do. (laughs) I'm just saying, there's so much that happens if you can cut through your enemy's forces and split them in half. You diminish their power. You diminish, diminish the giftings. You... And in terms of Christianity, we we give to the world a divided Christ. So if the enemy can divide us, he will conquer us. 
Remember, attack, even in the great, especially in the great the times in the church, it's really going and blowing. You know, he says, I, they think they got this, I got them. He begins to attack from within, and his main strategy I found to be, and here it is in Acts 6, divide and conquer. So there are two common ways to do this division that, that repeat themselves in history, and they're right here. So I want you to see what they are. The first one is, before the division occurs, folk in the body of Christ, when this attack comes, will be tempted to compare themselves. There will be groups in the body that will be tempted to compare themselves with one another. So in this situation, um, you've got one group of widows who happen to be what we call Hellenized or Greek speaking widows. You guys know this. In the fourth century, Alexander the Great only lived to be the age of 33. Most of his reign was uh, spent battling, and he basically took over the majority of the ancient Near Eastern world, and he brought Greek culture everywhere. Um, And so uh, there were folk who were ethnic Hebrews who were worshipers of Yahweh, not the Greek gods, but they were all about the Septuagint, which is a part of that Greek culture in, the, in those, last, those 400 years, 300 years before the turn you know, into the Christ era. Uh, the Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Old Testament that Hellenized folk, if they wanted to study the Old Testament, would study the Septuagint. And there was some disagreement in the ranks about whether you should study the Hebrew Scriptures or the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So that would certainly be on the table in this division. And then, how do you even apply what God said a good Jew was supposed to be about? Well, there was a way that many of the Hebrew, uh, acculturated Hebrew folk would apply the law that was different from the way the Greek-speaking Hebrew folk would apply the law. So there was a clash there around Torah. How do you apply this thing? Where are the compromises? Or where should there be no compromises? And of course, you even have a language situation. So the Hebrew folk that were acculturated Hebrew, continued to be acculturated Hebrew, they were speaking Aramaic, but these Greek-speaking Hebrews were speaking Greek. And so even the language thing was a barrier. And so the result of that comparing, and this can, by the way, happen not just in groups, it can happen in individuals. The result of the comparing was that there was a complaining. It says a complaint or To be honest, this is a Greek word that comes from a Hebrew word that's translated in the Old Testament to murmur. And it's that term that's used in Exodus and Numbers especially for the children of Israel when God took them out of Egypt and said, I'm going to lead you to the promised land. And they were like, thank you, thank you, you're the true God. But about, you know, three weeks in when they didn't have water, they started to murmur. In fact, one of the reasons they started to murmur was that they started looking at the other folk around them. They would see evidences of other cultures, and they're like, those folk have water. Why don't we have water? So the comparison led to murmuring. Interestingly enough, dig this. Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament says about this Hebrew word murmur from which this Greek word murmur comes from. The murmuring, of course, was not without reason. Namely, hunger or thirst in the desert, you'd think, uh, somebody needs to be complaining about this, Um, or an apparently unattainable goal, like promised land, where? We don't see it. All we see is rock. And if you've ever been in the Negev, if you've ever been in the desert, I was there a few years ago with Carla, actually about 16 years ago now, and we stood in that very hot 
in that hot, hot day. And, and our, our tour guide said, look out there. That's what it looked and felt like when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness. And I'm like, we were like, we were baking up in the shade. And so you can see why somebody might begin to murmur. But then the theological word book of the Old Testament says, but they sinned because they doubted God and cast aspersion on his justice, goodness, and power. So in other words, complaining, murmuring that comes from comparing. Somebody's getting more than me. I'm not getting what I deserve. Understandable. But here's what finally happens. God, you screwed up. Carl and I were talking about this. I was, sometimes I'll share something that just occurs to me in the middle of preparation for a talk or whatever. If I feel like, and I always give this caveat, please don't think I'm being preachy. Please, 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 please. Not that I ever could be, but um, they, um, I just make sure that she's in a space where she can hear something that I have to share. And especially in light of just a moment of transparency, um, not that we're any more special than anyone else that has gone through something tough, but don't we have a tendency to say, wait a minute, my wife, lover of children? My wife, I mean, who already lost her sister, are you kidding me, uh, to cancer, Lord? Who already lost her dad to a drunk driver, are you kidding me? Lord, give it to me, but not to her. I mean, and so Carla said to me, is there a difference between sadness and murmuring? And I said, I think so. God says, take your sadness, bring it to me, and lay it on my chest and pour it out. And I will hold you there, and I will receive that pain And I may not give you any answers, but I will begin to heal that pain. It's called lament. But when we murmur, we basically don't come close to God. We back off from God. We shake our fist at God. We point our fingers at God, and we shout, you screwed this up. You should have did this. The data is all there. Why don't you see it the way I see it? But instead, you gave me this. Sadness, yes. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But murmuring is not lament. Murmuring is you messed this up. And when we allow ourselves, to the back to the point, in the body of Christ, to murmur and shake our fist at God, usually we will look for a scapegoat. So, get this. Comparison always eventually divides. Now listen to the words of Bernard of Clairvaux, who was a Cistercian monk, who helped really um, since the days of St. Benedict when the monastic movement started back in the 4th, 5th century. The monastic movement had gotten corrupt with a lot of the church that had gotten corrupt by the time of the Reformation and even in this, uh, in this era in the 12th century. So Bernard was one of those brothers who helped bring the rule of St. Benedict back into an order called the Cistercian Order. Listen to what he says about the results of comparing and see if this doesn't make sense. Comparison always leads to division. He says, you who observe others instead of attending to yourself, 
will begin before long to see some as your superiors and others as your inferiors. In some, you will see things to envy. In others, things to despise. The eyes have wandered and the mind soon follows. It is no longer steadily fixed on its real concerns. It is now carried up on the crest of the waves of pride, now down into the trough of envy. One minute you are full of envious sadness, the next childishly glad about some excellence you see in yourself. The former is evil, the latter vain, and both bespeak pride because it is obsession with one's own excellence, obsession with one's own excellence that makes you weep when you are surpassed and rejoice in surpassing others. He goes on to say there are only two times to be really, really, really concerned with others. Number one, when you need some help. And number two, when they need some help from you. When you're looking for mercy or when you have mercy to give. Now, that's just the first part of the enemy's divide and conquer tactic. Comparison, which leads ultimately to murmuring. You got more than me. They're getting more soup. What, what up? It, you got more. I got less. I should be getting the same as you. And eventually, division. First, we shake our fist at God, and then we need a scapegoat, somebody that will take the blame for why we're not getting what we should get. And then the second piece of this is this thing called identity. Because what happens is we start looking for reasons in here, and often in history, in cultural identity as a point of division. So what was going on here was you cultural Hebraic Jews are getting more soup because you are looking down upon and marginalizing us Greek-speaking Jews. Now, I want you to see, to understand the impact of this division, how much these sisters have in common The enemy still finds a way to divide. They're both women, so gender they have in common. Their ethnicity, they are ethnic Jews. They have Jewish blood in their veins. They're descendants of Abraham and Sarah. Their economics, both poor. Situation in life, both groups, widows. Faith, both believers in Jesus Christ as a resurrected Messiah. But with you've got to see this. With all that common ground, The enemy, the angel of light, found a way down in to find a place where he could say, yeah, with all that unity, here's a place to divide. And he always does. Thus, a primary identity other than being a son or daughter of God in Christ will always divide. You heard me say this a couple of weeks ago. Cultural identity, ethnic identity is a cool thing. It can be the most wonderful adjective in our life. If it becomes the noun, then no matter how many commonalities you think you have with those others with which you share a cultural identity, the enemy will always find a way to slice it down to the point that you will split. How many times have you heard Joe Hurd and I Stand here and talk about how we met. My 
mostly white, middle-class and upper-middle-class church, Grace Community, was dividing, even though we had much, shall we say, racially and ethnically in common and many, many other commonalities. But we found a way to split. While Joe got to Grace six months before Grace split because his all-African-American church, which had many, many, many cultural and ethnic and many other reasons to be together, also found a way to divide. So I'm not saying, by the way, that these Hebrew-speaking Jews weren't discriminating against the Greek-speaking Jews. I suspect they probably were whether consciously or unconsciously. And we don't know what kind of conversations they had to have to work that stuff out because you can't ignore something if it's unrighteous. And if there was discrimination based upon culture, it has to be looked at, shared, and dealt with in the name of Christ. But if we're going to be able in the body of Christ in history to stay together long enough to have those conversations, then we must have our primary identity as sons and daughters of God in Jesus Christ. I am, first of all, a son of God in Christ. I'm secondly a white man. I'm secondly a married man. I'm second, third, fourthly a father. Fifthly a grandfather. Uh, sixthly, a real tough-looking weightlifter. I'm, I'm all of those other things. Those are all my adjectives. And I got a bunch more that make me not a clone of anybody here and not boring. If I'm my true self, hush, Chris, if I'm my true self. <laughs> but I got to tell you, um, my primary identity, the noun of who I am, and the noun of who we are, my brothers and sisters, as we move ahead in Jesus' name. If there is cultural discrimination, if there is racial discrimination, we must talk about it. And we are. We've got a group that's meeting now right down the street that's growing in numbers, that's a part of our community. And there's other discussions happening. There have been some formal ones. There will be some informal ones. And we ought to be able to go to one another and say, I think this felt like race to me. I think this felt bad to me. This did not feel like we're treating each other equally. We've got to talk about it. We have to be safe enough to take off the mask and say, in Christ, we can have that conversation. But if we do not have our primary, if my primary identity is a white man, if Joe Hurd's primary identity is that a black man, I will promise you we will have no unified ground upon which to have those conversations. The enemy will get us to compare ourselves with one another. Look what you got. Look what I don't have. Look what I have. Look what you don't have. Whatever. And then we'll start to complain and then we'll start to say, well, it's because, and then we will divide. And it has played out in this very way dozens and dozens of times in history. I'm thinking of the genocide in Rwanda. Hutus and the Tutsis, many of them serious followers of Jesus Christ. But when the enemy was able, quite frankly, in many ways, due to the history of, of, of colonialism, quite frankly, due to the history of colonialism, when the enemy was able to say, well, that's your brother in Christ, that Tutsi or that Hutu is your brother in Christ, but remember, first of all, you're a Hutu. First of all, you're a Tutsi. The result 
genocide. This, look, this is not a cute little sociologically paradigm sermon. This is the truth of the gospel. That one of the first attacks of the enemy to divide it. Can you imagine what would have happened if the church would have divided here? Can you imagine what would have happened if the church would have divided here? One of the first truths that Luke is trying to expose is our primary identities in Jesus Christ. We have wonderfully diverse cultural identities and many other kinds of identities that we should celebrate and lift up and enjoy and share. But that ha- they have to be the adjective. Jesus Christ has to be the noun. And if there's injustice, we talk about it. We share it. We deal with it. We pray through it. We own it. We repent. We forgive. We get counseling. We do whatever we have to do. We get demons cast out. We do whatever we have to do. But the only way we will move into those conversations is if we're secure in our identity as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Often, the enemy's tactic is to divide and conquer. And this is how he gets it done. Are you catching this? Number four. So I will tell you, I will tell you, look, I'll just say this. I know I'm going to have a new role at some point, probably sooner than later. But you got to know this. As an elder in this community, and I'm an elder, not because I have some kind of an elder pin. I'm an elder because I'm, I'm older. I'm an elder. <laughs> Feel an elderish all the time. And I will promise you this, whether I'm up here or not, we'll see how the new senior pastor feels about how many, what he wants his preaching team to look like or her preaching team or whatever. But I will tell you this, can I tell you one of the things that I'm watching for and going to be encouraging us to live into is this Acts chapter 6 Beware the attack of the enemy, not from out there, but from within here. And if you come to me with your pain, you know me, I will receive it. It's one of the few gifts I have is that I have a capacity to receive your pain. But I will promise you, if it is about your brothers and sisters, once I have sat with you, once I have listened to you, once I have shared your pain, once we've wept together, and once you know that I feel you, Remember 1 Peter 3? First step toward unity, sympathies, feel with one another. Once I have looked at you and said, do you know that I'm feeling you? Do you know that I'm getting what you're saying to me? Then you can imagine if it has something to do with race, ethnicity, or forget those two categories, any other category that the enemy is using to divide you with one of your brothers and sisters, you can, pro- you can promise that I'm not just going to hug you, sing kumbaya, and send you off into the night. I'm going to be giving you instruction as an elder of the church of Jesus Christ about your next steps under the, your surrender to the Holy Spirit to move back into open discussion, even pain, even drama if need be, to get to the point where we can stay together. Because the future of hope, hope's impact to be a place where the disciples are multiplying has to do a lot more with what we're talking about this morning than anything that's going on in government, anything that's going on in the streets, anything that's going on anywhere else. Our future depends on how we handle what happened in Acts 6 when the enemy tries to do that same thing here, and he will. So, number four, 
Can't stay here long, uh, but just to land this plane. What is the counterattack in this text? Strategic kingdom counterattack, Christ-centered leadership. Now, this passage has been used by every denomination as an argument for their particular kind of church structure. It's been used as an argument that you should have a deacon board because the word that's translated deacon in other passages like 1 Timothy 3 is a uh, a, a related term to a couple of terms that are used here, translated serve and minister. And for those who want to say, well, you know, pastors should only do this. They shouldn't be doing this. Uh, Let me just say this. Luke... Oh, my gosh. Luke is not talking about church structure. Can you imagine? You've got this satanic attack. And, and, and the, the church is on the cusp of being divided and shut down. And can you imagine that Luke says, now, really, what I want to spin off to right now is a lecture about uh, church leadership and uh, whether you should be uh, an Episcopal system or whether you should be a, more of a Baptistic system. It ain't about that. If you have a deacon board, which we do, it didn't come from this text. What he is trying to say, I mean, could he be saying something about responsibilities amongst leaders? Of course he could. But what he's really trying to say is, is that satanic division from within often calls for Christ-centered leadership from within. Notice, these leaders were commissioned by the apostles but chosen by the people. The apostles said to the people, seek out from amongst you. The people went and found these folk. I thought that was pretty cool. Brought them back to the apostles, and the apostles affirmed them. It's kind of a similar process that we're going through in some ways with our our search for a senior pastor. We've formed a, a search committee from within our community, and they are charged with the responsibility of going out. You guys know you can feed them names. You can whatever. At some point, there'll be an affirmation from the leadership of this community and from you, but the, the process is about the people. The people know who the people are that need to be leading in certain situations. They know what's going on. And so in this situation, three character traits, good reputation, which doesn't mean perfect. Uh, the message translates, folks trust them. These needed to be folk that folks trusted because they lived with integrity, not because they did everything right all the time. Secondly, they need to be full of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, if you've been tracking in the book of Acts, this fullness of the Holy Spirit has been mentioned at least four times before now. The Holy Spirit is all over Acts. You don't do jack in Acts as a part of the church of Jesus Christ without the Holy Spirit. Unless you think that this fullness of the Holy Spirit is some kind of a, you know, one of those... um, Moments where the light shines through the darkness and it's not that. Because then it's too easy for us to say, well, that's for those special brothers and sisters, not for us. This is simply the phrase that Paul uses in Ephesians 5.18 to the whole church of Ephesus, be filled with the Spirit. Be Be controlled by the Spirit. How about this? Surrender to the Holy Spirit. I give myself away. These folk were simply folk that had grown enough that in the eyes of the people, they weren't perfect, but they had 
and continue to give themselves away. Their agenda, they had no agenda but serving the Lord Christ. And then lastly, they were full of wisdom. Many times, it seems that people in the world look at church leaders and think we're full of something else. But in this situation, very clearly full of wisdom, which does not mean they had to have a college education. doesn't mean they had to have a master's degree. Wisdom means to be able to apply knowledge in practical ways that work in life. So, good reputation, trustworthy. They had integrity. They've given themselves away to Christ under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and they were full of wisdom. Now, listen. We don't even know. Luke doesn't tell us what they did because that wasn't the point. Because if leaders have a good reputation are trusted by the people and if they have surrendered to the Holy Spirit and they're saying, what do you want, Lord? I'm here, whatever it is. If it hurts me, whatever, just so you preserve your people, so you love your, I'm here to do it, Lord. You want to take me out to preserve the body? Take me out. I just want what you want, Lord, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And some of these tough, you think there weren't some hard conversations, getting folk in a room saying, tell me what you think these Hebrew-speaking widows have done to you or, those, or, or their husbands or whatever. Tell me why you think you haven't discriminated. Tell me why you think, do you think there didn't need to be wisdom? To be able to discern what was going on? He doesn't even say what happened, all he says is that chapter 6, verse 7 is the result of these folks stepping in. Look, the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Yes. It is. No. That's exactly right, Chris. Many educated people don't have wisdom. They don't know how to apply truth in tough situations. Many people that have a sixth grade education or less have great wisdom. They take obvious truth and know how to apply it in very wise ways under the authority of the Holy Spirit. You are absolutely right. So this is what I want you to see, especially going forward, especially as we're a community that has some degree of anxiety because, you know, we're, there's change. There's change in the wind. And we want to continue to bring that out and be, give space to speak about it. Listen, if we watch ourselves knowing that the the threat is mostly going to come from here, not there. And not that that makes your brothers and sisters evil. It's just the enemy can use any of us, can he not? We get off track just a little bit. They're still our brothers and sisters. I'm just saying, he could use any of us. If we stay aware that the enemy is going to be after this community, if we stay aware, because we're going to be about loving people into the kingdom of God and seeing them healed, if we can be aware that he will start with comparing, which leads to grumbling, which leads to first shaking our fist at God, and often, whether it's as individuals or groups, pointing at someone else. Some of this can be applied to 
smaller divisions between individuals in the community. If we can continue to discuss those issues openly, and if need be, have leadership around us that is full of the Holy Spirit, of good reputation, and um, able to apply wisdom. Listen now. There is nothing that the enemy can do to keep Acts 6-7 happening to this community until Jesus Christ returns. I look at Acts 6 like I look at Rocky 4. I actually looked at a clip of it the other day. And what was that guy's name? Ivan, Ivan Drago. And Rocky, you know Rocky, he just, just taken, he just taken those blows. He just taken those blows. The church in Acts 6, boom, 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 boom. Telling you, sorry, Rita, didn't mean to get so close. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you, you don't see all the drama here, but I'm telling you, the church's knees were buckling. But the church of Jesus Christ, under the godly leadership of these folk, took the enemy's best shot, came out of the corner. But remember that scene where he just body blows, boom, boom, and that big old Ivan Drago was just like, uh, uh. I mean, it's like, what a scene. I know, that's sick, isn't it, that I like that scene? I don't know. But you have to understand, I was seeing spiritual messages in it. But anyway, the tr- we will be able to take anything the enemy dishes out at us. And Acts 6-7 will be for us. The word of God will continue to spread. And even the most unlikely people, the priests up in the temple, will be coming to Christ. Because greater is he who is within us than he who is within the world. By the way, I didn't even tell you this, but do you think it's interesting that all seven names... By the, I should say this too. Sorry, I don't get to preach that much, so... I can, I can say a few more things, right? Um, all seven names were of men. That was more the Jewish culture at that time than anything else. So it, it, today we would say that was fairly discriminatory right there. Not fairly. It just seems to be. It was the culture of the time. If you can cut the Hebrew culture some slack at this point. Today we would be saying seven men and women full of the Holy Spirit, um, full of wisdom, and of good reputation which later on in the New Testament is made much more clear. Um, Also, all seven of these names were Greek. Now, F.F. Bruce, you try not to make too much of something that the commentator, that the author itself doesn't say, oh, by the way, this is a big deal. But even F.F. Bruce, great British scholar who wrote a wonderful commentary in the book of Acts, says it is amazing that all seven names are Greek names. Probably an attempt by the dominant culture to say, you need to know uh, my Greek sisters and brothers, my Greek-speaking uh, and Hellenized sisters and brothers, that you are well represented in our community. 
and that uh, we are all for one and one for all. Just kind of a cool little ditty that you could just skip over if you didn't read the New Testament with some degree of care and with F.F. Bruce by your side.